Welcome to Rooster Radio. I'm Andrew Montessi with James Begley. Today we talk to IT entrepreneur Jeff Rorsheim. Jeff was part of our panel at the In Daily Business Index event, which you can listen to in episode 56. But we've got him back to go deeper into his fascinating story. Jeff is a former EY Entrepreneur of the Year winner for the Southern Region and had three startups appear in the BRW Fast 100. Cloud Solutions grew rapidly in five years and was ranked the fastest growing company in Australia in 2014, before being acquired by Telstra in early 2016 for north of $40 million. Unbelievably, this was Jeff's second sale. His first company, Strategic Data Management, was also picked up for a multi-million dollar sum, and he explains the fundamentals of planning for a successful exit. He tried retirement for a few months, but got bored. Jeff now has five startups on the go, all focused on emerging fields in tech, and explains how he keeps on top of the growing companies. Not bad for a bloke who finished high school having never touched a computer. Jeff comes from humble beginnings. He's one of six kids, and his siblings include an orthopaedic surgeon, Navy pilot, and the general manager of Uber Australia New Zealand. Jeff shares insights into his high-performing family, approaches to education and learning, risk, and keeping the fire in the belly. Enjoy our chat with Jeff Rorsheim. Jeff Rorsheim, welcome to Rooster Radio. Thanks for having me. You're one of six. I want to know what the Rorsheim family dinner was like when you were growing up. What transpired? <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. It was, it was six o'clock on the dot. Dad being a military man, it was always, everything was pretty well timed around the place and it was six o'clock uh, and and I remember what's well, very different to, to today um, none of us were allowed to leave the table until ev- we'd finished everything on our plate you know, that was the old school you know and so there was often some chocos and cabbage and things that we all just look at each other going how are we going to get rid of this <laughs> coming up with ingenious in, in ways of hiding it in your pockets and you know so that you wouldn't actually have to eat it <laughs> Um, and that was so yeah, six of us, but but we were spread. It was uh, there's quite a gap between eldest, my sister older than me, and my youngest David. Um, so I still remember when David was born, my youngest brother. I remember Dad taking the phone call from Mum because of course in those days the father wasn't at the birth, and he'd pick up the phone and he'd say, "All right, great, okay, you've got another brother." <laughs> was, the, was the call? So we'd he wasn't go, oh, he wasn't at the hospital. No, for any of them, not one of the six. Whereas, of course, I was at both of mine because that's all very much a done thing now. But back then, it wasn't. It didn't seem to be the done thing. Dads weren't there. And did you get a sense? Like, was was it a discussion time? Was it a time where you talked about the day that had happened? Can you remember what that was like? Um, it was pretty rowdy. You'd imagine with all those with all those kids. Um, and there, yeah, there was a bit of a discussion about what people what what had been done in the day. And then Mum would always sort of steer it towards. Um, you know what's what's homework? What's everyone got to do straight after dinner? Because sort of homework time. Get that sort of out of the way, and then um, that was her focus. And we didn't watch a lot of television. You know, again compared to today, I think back then, and really, we really weren't. That wasn't encouraged. <laughs> so your old man was a military man, you said. Yeah. So what's his story? So his story was. Um, so he grew up in a family business, the Port Perry uh, Rorsham Bakery. Uh, his, which his grandfather started, and that was quite a successful business in the north of South Australia, um, you know, distributing bread products throughout the north of South Australia before it was bought by a large multinational. Um, so when Dad grew up, he was, in his spare time, was always working in the bakery. You know, he would deliver 
you know, 14 without a licence would be driving the, you know, one of the vehicles uh, to deliver bread. Um, and he, he stopped going to school in year 10 I don't, and he's, he's, he tells the story, not sure that's true or not, but that his mum didn't even realise that he'd stopped going to school. He was just going to, the, going to work in about, at about 15, grade 10. So he didn't even finish, you know, he finished year nine basically, didn't even finish year 10. Uh, and I think he, I think growing up he probably watched other people around him and thought, mm, you know, maybe I should have finished school and maybe mm. I should have done a bit more because he's quite a smart man, my father, um, intellectually, um, but of course had no education. You know, no. So did he pass, I guess having learnt from his own experience not finishing school, did he have a big emphasis on education yeah. for the yeah. kids then? Yeah, he did. And he would um, he would often test us on things. Like I remember for me, he would, um, whenever we, if we were on a trip, a family trip going somewhere, always driving, of course, couldn't afford to fly with eight of us. In one car? In one car. Because all, had, all had seatbelts, I'm assuming. No, didn't need them back then. <laughs> so this is the 70s. There was no rule on seatbelts. So there was six of us floating around on the back of a station wagon with a seat down, with a mattress. And so the little ones would be sleeping and the others would be playing cards or whatever. Just cruising along in the old Ford Falcon. And we'd pull up and get fuel and Dad would make me calculate the fuel economy of the last leg. So he'd say, you know, we've just put... How many litres have we just put in and how many kilometres have we just travelled since the last stop? And so he'd make me, you know, on paper, figure out what the mileage was. And, uh, you know, just sort of to encourage that sort of, one, the maths, but two, the, just the practical side of what is going on. Because he's quite a practical person. He was a pilot. So everything was about, they were always having to calculate fuel usage and how far they got left to fly and all that sort of thing. So he was trying to pass on some of that practical um, knowledge. But in the, in the process, I think, was, it was actually, um, it gave, gave me a real appreciation for the, for the sort of maths. I actually started to really like that maths and physics side of the world. Um, which is why I ended up in engineering, um, because that was yeah that was it was it just came naturally to me in the end. It was really easy. I found maths and physics. And were there competitions to to answer your dad's questions? And yeah. I'm, I'm a bit fascinated with the six, you know, the the entourage of brothers and sisters, how that plays out for competition in 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 hard ways, but in also really kind of powerful ways. Well, I think the. Um, you know, speaking to my little brothers about some of this stuff in in recent years, because we're all you know all grown up, all married, all got kids. Um, they said it was it was good for them being young, looking up at watching the older ones, you know, doing things and getting on, and then saying, okay, well that's what I've got to do. It sort of was a natural mm. flow that okay, well I've got to do, do well at this, and then I go on and do that. And so they said that it was good having those role models. Whereas for for myself and my older sister Michaela. Um, we, of course, didn't have that. Um, we were the ones at the, the top of the pile, I guess. So I think um, mum and dad spent more time on us, making sure we were on the right path, and then the others sort of followed. And mum mum's the first one to admit that uh, number six, she didn't really do a, a lot with, mm. <laughs> because it was sort of, there was a well-worn path that he just followed. You know? But they were quite hard on, on the, the you and your sister? Um yeah, very. Look, yeah, absolutely. Um, very strict on um, on on that whole being doing doing well at school and and uh, you know where I wanted to go and get a job and make some money so I could you know buy myself a new bike or something. Dad was very no no no. You're not going to do that. You do not need to worry about that. You've got a bike, you know, which he'd bought me. 
an old crappy one, but you've got one. Uh, you don't need a new bike. What you need is to get educated because one day you'll be able to buy whatever bike you like. Well, he was right, wasn't he? Mm. <laughs> he was absolutely right. Um, but I think that was because of his learnings, you know, himself having jumped out of the sort of education route a bit early, I think, um, realised that he probably shouldn't have and would have wanted his kids to make sure they just reached their potential, if, if that's your thing, you know, if, and clearly it was. We are all pretty academic, so um, it would have been a shame not to explore that at least. What was the personality dynamic like amongst all the kids? Because I would imagine that... Um you know, depending on personalities, you get you might get some siblings who are more dominant, others that are quieter and might rely on the older ones to kind of take a lead role. What what was the kind of dynamic like in well, Michaela, personalities? The older one, Michaela, was sort of like the mother, mother yeah. hen, um, to the point where I remember she was she was telling me a story. She was pushing the pram with David, the youngest, down the street, and Granny, some old Granny, came up and said, "Oh, is it your first child?" Because she would have been fifteen. 16 maybe when David was born she was pushing the pram um, and so she had that sort of natural mm. started to motherly because she had these little children that were following her around all the time often it was Michaela and the little kids so she was the sort of the, the, the mother hen if you like there was me who was sort of leading the charge on the um, I was getting right into the sport and academics and you know so that was something then the, the other boys would then we'd all play cricket in the backyard of course and I'd be bowling as fast as I could to my little brothers and they you know so the little ones would be like, <laughs> I was actually quite fast. <laughs> I felt quite good that I could bowl faster. Little you know, kids who were ten years younger than me. Um, so there was that, and then they bowled to me, and you know, so we we're all we we're all actually helping each other, and we kicked the footy yeah. of each other, and so that was actually useful. You know, you'd go down to the park at any time. You could go down to the park and play sport together. So that helped us, improved mm. all our our capability. Um, James, who's the orthopaedic surgeon, he was the one that's the bit of the black sheep. He even looks different. Most of us were blue-eyed, blonde-haired, Aaron German descent. Uh, except James, he's got dark hair, he's got brown eyes and he just couldn't sit still. He's just one of those, you know, just literally couldn't sit still. Just what you want for an orthopaedic surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he's got a steady hand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but it's just funny, James, Out of the, he was very different to the rest of us uh, in, that, in that regard. Most of us are pretty, you know, reserved and straight down the arrow, but uh, straight down the line, but he's... Yeah, he just ants his pants, as Mum would say. Just couldn't stop, and yeah, you know, and he was very good at sport because for that reason mm. he couldn't. You know, he, he had a lot of energy, and um, yeah, he was an interesting cat, James. <laughs> so, moving then away from the family and and leaving what is a big nest. Yeah, was it a was it a painful or liberating experience then to come down and 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 separate from the family and pursue university? Yeah, again, I think Michaela led that charge. So she, um, because we moved around a lot with Dad, every three years typically we'd get, you know, it'd be one of the dinner time conversations would be Dad would come home and say, well, I've got two choices I've been offered, you know, we're going to here or we're going to there. And then we'd actually have a little bit of a discussion around it. And the last one that I remember was, um, well, the last one he had in the military was uh, he came home and said, we're in Brisbane, living in Brisbane, all of us. David had just been born, um, the last of six, and Dad said, well, we've got two choices. We can go to Canberra or Adelaide. And we all went, oh, God, don't want to go to Canberra. Where's Adelaide? Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'd never you know, grown, up, grown up in Brisbane, never really thought about anywhere else. Uh, well, I think we're going to go to Adelaide, Dad. We don't want to go to Canberra. None of us want to go to Canberra. We just had that vision of Canberra being a, not a great place to live as a kid. 
So we went to Adelaide and by then Michaela was moving into year 11, so that's pretty tough moving here uh, in, in, a year, in, in her year 11 and 12. So she did year 11 and 12 and then left, went back to Brisbane. So she'd sort of left mm. and I'd seen her just finish school and go and I was sort of like, okay, maybe that's what I should do too. And so she went off and did nursing and in those days that was when you actually lived in on the college and lived at the hospital and actually, you know, did practical three years in the hospital being a nurse. And, uh, and I thought, well, I wonder what I could do. And in, long story short, I ended up getting the scholarship to the Defence Academy in Canberra, funnily enough, having mm. said we didn't want to go to Canberra. Farmer. <laughs> so, that's <laughs> I think it was. Where we lived on college, lived in the college, the military college there, and we did our degrees and we, uh, you know, learnt to be officers in the military. And, and so I'd left straight after school as well. And it was sort of that, uh, sort of, Michaela sort of started that trend of, well, you finish school and you, and you leave. And I remember Dad even saying, he gave me $500 when I left home. It's the only thing, money, money he's ever given me in my life was he gave me $500 and said, I've given you a good education, good luck. And, you know, $500 in today's dollars, that was 1985. It's probably about, I don't know, a couple of grand. Yeah, probably 1500 two grand. And I remember I bought a jacket. I had to buy a jacket because you had to have a jacket to be in the officer's mess in the, in the, as a cadet in the, at the Defence Academy, which is about 170 bucks. I remember that. And then I bought a little radio, stereo thing from my desk so that when I was studying I could listen to music and that was about 150 bucks. So I was down to, you know, under, under a couple of hundred dollars for, and that was just beer money for the first few weeks until I got paid. And would you call yourself at that point ambitious? Like, did, were you on a path, on a mission, or you yeah. were just checking things out? I, um, I didn't know where I was going to go, but I just, I just knew that um, I, did, I definitely wanted to go somewhere. I was pretty, I was ambitious. Uh, I knew I'd done well at school. I was academic. I, could, I'm, I, I knew I could, I could study some stuff, and, I'm, I, and I hoped that would lead to something, but I didn't know what absolutely didn't know what what it was going to be at that point um i actually thought it, uh, while i was at school i thought i was going to be a pilot like my father a military pilot because i used to growing up you know, as a kid we'd dad would come back on the aircraft carrier back in the good old days come back from america or somewhere with these great toys for us including my bike and we'd ride the bike around on the aircraft carrier flight deck you know and that was just awesome watching looking at all these Amazing, jets and everything yeah. just saying this is great this is what i'm going to do and again dad being smart and, and, and having, having had life experience, said, yeah, that's a good idea, you should do that, but you should also study. So you've got something to fall back on, which is why I did the aerospace engineering degree, because that was very much aviation-focused, but it, with my engineering sort of bent, and that was the best thing he did, because, of course, I realised a few years into that that I didn't want to be a pilot. Flying's fun, you know, still enjoy flying, but I wouldn't do it as a job. So it's almost like... so you. Your dad has set up a framework for the kids in a way. It was, I'll give you an education, I'll give you discipline. And, and mum, Monty. Yeah, and mum, no, but I'm, I'm, yeah. yeah, of course. But it's, like, it's almost like this set framework. And as you said, it's a well-worn path. Education, discipline, Yeah. complete your studies, now get yeah. out of here and go do it. Go and do it, yeah. And knowing that, you know, I do know that had, you know, he gave me the $500, had I needed something else, I probably could have gone and mm. asked him for it and he probably would have given it to me or borrowed it, lent it to me. He did actually lend me some money to buy my first computer, funnily enough, three years later. Um, you know, I was a bit short. I needed, I needed $500 extra to buy a hard drive, would you believe? The PC that I first bought had two floppy drives in it only, no hard drive. They didn't come with hard drives in those days. Extra 500 bucks, I could get a 20 megabyte 
hard drive put into my PC. So I asked him, I didn't have that 500 at the time, so it was uni, and I asked him if I could borrow that. He said, of course. That would be three or four pictures now that we would mm. um, send via an email. It'd be 20, 20 megs, well, this, wouldn't it? This recording probably wouldn't fit on it, would it? No. Yeah. But you mentioned your first computer. You had no interest in IT, despite the fact that now we know that it's, That's my it's your life. Yep. Um, how did the interest in IT come about? Mm. Yeah, so when I finished school in 85, we, there was no... The PC hadn't... Well, my PCs were probably out by then. Microsoft started... Microsoft DOS first appeared in the mid-'80s, I think. Um, certainly no Mac. Um, so we, hadn't, we didn't have PCs, any of us, in my year at school. There was apparently a computer at the school that I was at um, for the Computer Society guys to play around with with punch cards and we did one lesson on punch cards I do remember that and absolutely not giving a can you just explain for those who may not be familiar what the punch card is we don't know well (laughs) I've seen it in the movies but yeah I don't really even know either it's like (laughs) seriously was it a computer way to calculate things was it it was it was the input because it was like because the whole keyboard concept it was like how do you get your program into the computer okay you use these cards, which... So, like, you put in those, um, you know, the pianos that play music yes, and stuff, exactly and you put, like in, you put in that, and then the piano plays ah, the song. Exactly oh, yeah, that. yeah, So, basically, what you're doing is feeding in those cards with that program that you then wanted it to run. And the next person's program was his series of cards that he'd put in, and it had run. So, we're just thinking, what is this? You know, like, we had... This was just like, you know, for us 15-year-old boys at an all-boys school at the time who were all just interested in playing sport and chasing girls, we weren't interested in punch cards going into a machine that you couldn't see. You didn't see the computer, you didn't know where it was, it was behind a wall somewhere, and, and you'd put this thing into this reader and out would print a, you know, hello world sort of statement on a piece of paper on this big dot matrix printer and think, well, that's pretty boring. <laughs> you know, like, it was just not interesting yeah. to me at all. Not in the slightest. So what got you going then, Yeah. So it wasn't till, um so I went to university, uh, so uni, first year uni as an engineer, you have to do computer science one, um, and that was just like, I remember going to the first lecture and there was an Indian lecturer, and he was, to me, speaking Swahili. Like, he was talking about all this computer stuff. We were learning Pascal, Fortran, languages you probably never heard of, but they, and I was just, I was, remember just sitting there going, this just, just doesn't make any sense whatsoever to me. This was lex- lesson one. I said, I'm not going to bother coming to any more of these lessons. Didn't go to any more of those lectures. Got to the um, exams and thought, oh, how am I going to pass this computer science subject? So I got the textbook and read it. Just started reading it from page one and it actually made some sense. So anyway, I passed the, passed the exam because I was good at that, passing the exams. So I passed that exam. That went on for a couple of years so we had to keep doing these courses. But it wasn't until third year when we got to um, RMIT in Melbourne because we were doing aerospace. You could only finish it in either RMIT in Melbourne or, or Sydney University in those days. We only two that had the wind tunnels and everything you needed to finish your course. I went down there and our aerodynamics professor picked up on the fact that this, this group of uh, kids in that year had, had no interest in IT. None of, I, wasn't, I wasn't, wasn't alone. We were all the same. Had no interest in computing whatsoever. So he, um, he said, this is not good, and he tried to lecture mm. us on saying, you know, you've really got to get your head around this stuff, guys and girls. Was only few, there wasn't too many girls in our course in those days. Um, and he said, you know, you're really going to have to uh, learn how to do computing if you're going to be engineers. And mm. we said, yeah, yeah, whatever. So then he set a... Um, we didn't listen to him, of course. We, he then set an assignment 
that were on on wings designing the wings for a I think it was from memory a 200 seat passenger seat aircraft we were going to design, and he kept changing the um, the dimension, you know, the, the specifications, whether it was distance or the number of passengers or the weight or the whatever it was going to mm. carry. So therefore, you'd have to you would have to keep recalculating the wing size, and if you did that manually, that would be horrendous. So basically, he was forcing us to get a computer to help us do it. So then we started learning. You know, we'd learnt computing by then. We'd learnt these languages. So we said, okay, well maybe we need to write a program to do this for us. Mm. And that, to me, that was the sort of light bulb moment for me to realise that once I'd finished that, that I could just so quickly just enter a few parameters and out would pop the answer. And that appealed to my laziness. It really <laughs> did appeal to thinking, hey, I can get things done a lot faster, a lot, lot faster, which means I can get back out onto playing sport or going out. Um, if I get more into this, maybe I have been wrong. So I should you, really get into this. So you were thinking more about making your own life easier at the time? And rather, more productive. Okay. I was, it was all about... It was a selfish thing about making myself be able to work smarter, not harder. Okay. That's all it was. So then I got into that, and then I thought, well, actually, you know, quite, I'm actually starting to quite like this stuff because it appealed to the, the logic part of my engineering brain. It's very, you know, it's computers. You know, people say, oh, why doesn't it work? Well, it's probably because you've done something wrong. Mm. You know, it's not the computer that's wrong. So it's very logical, which appeals to my brain. And so then I started doing all my optional subjects in, you know, in like most degrees you can do subjects in other fields you know it's optional subjects so I did all of those in the computer science department went down to the computer science department said so which subjects can I do um, so I managed to get myself a while finishing my engineering degree as well I managed to get a um, diploma you know a graduate diploma in computing so I actually got a qualification in computing and then I did it later did a master's in engineering science which is all computer based as well so I sort of moved myself that way mm. from then on Beyond the curriculum, were you also immersing yourself in the tech or the computer world? What was going on at that period of time with computers? Yeah, no, I wasn't. No, um, and I do often kick myself about that because um, at the time that was, I remember having to buy this thing called Microsoft DOS, you know, and, and if, I'd, if I'd spent that $500 I spent on the hard drive on Microsoft shares, yeah, I'd be, I'd be sitting on a large yacht somewhere in the, in the Mediterranean. You know, now that would be worth a, a serious amount of money. Um, you know, that was that 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 was the heydays of of Microsoft, um, you know, forming and and just getting on as he wanted to, as Bill Gates famously said to be. He wanted to be on every desktop and every in every house and every and every built every uh, uh, business in the world, and he just about got there. Um, so he, you know, that was a, that was what was happening. Was this Microsoft thing, but it, it was just an aside thing for us. We weren't we weren't watching it. Um, you know, I remember when I was doing my masters, I, I watched the. Uh, it was interesting to see the early days of the internet because I got an email address. I was given an email address, which was great. Oh, that's cool. But of course, I couldn't email anyone because none of my friends had email addresses. Yeah. It was only the university boffins at the time and a, a few masters and PhD students that were mucking around with it. And I was, you know. I was connecting into Hawaii. I remember telnetting into Hawaii. This is before you could, you know, search and browse and Google and whatever. I'd have to connect to the a server in Hawaii via the server in Melbourne, cross to the Hawaii, do a directory listing, see these file names and think, mm, what, that one might have one I'm looking for. You know, copy that file over to my PC, my, it wasn't a PC, whatever I was on, probably a Unix machine back then, open it up 
I needed to see that it had nothing to do with what I was looking for. So you'd go through that process again. Going to these universities looking for um, papers when I was doing my master's to to um, to research. And, you know, and, in the, and when I was there, so that was mid-90s, you could start to see the first of the browsers coming. So, And that was um, Netscape. You know, it was the first mm. one I saw. And just, just to pause on your progression th- into IT for a second... Learning is obviously key to you, um, your education. Um, how are you actually absorbing this information? What's your approach to learning? Was it something that you're able to just pick up naturally? You mentioned earlier that exams are relatively easy yep. for you. Was it because you you were so disciplined with your approach to learning or it was just something natural? Uh, I think I've always I've, I've followed this. I've done subjects and courses that... Um, it's definitely in my, you know, sweet spot. Like I'm, you know, subjects like where we had to at school memorise a lot of stuff, you know, English and history and those things, you know, I didn't love because that meant spending a lot, a lot of time, you know, committing stuff to memory just so you could... Mm. Uh, I'm assuming that you don't see that as kind of as practical, can't use that. No, whereas I would, I would just spend time to make sure I understood the concept and then I could just apply that. So for me, it wasn't about having to... To study for an exam wasn't that bad because it was just a matter of understanding the concepts and then you could apply that in the exam, whereas when you have to just absorb, like I imagine studying law must be horrendous for me. I could not do it, Mm. having to learn all this stuff and learn about previous examples or cases or whatever they call it. um, To be able to then regurgitate that would just not be me. I wouldn't do well with that at all. Do you still mimic some of the patterns now to learn things like do you, do you have music on and you sit and just lock yourself away do you read books do you speak to people how does that occur and i um for a while i was making sure um i was going overseas and and getting to conferences because you know us and europe are are you know leading the the charge in the whole it world and so i was even at a, um when i first started the first business even though i didn't have a hell of a lot of money I did invest in doing that because it was well worth being ahead of your competition. Whereas now, of course, you can go to a, a conference virtually, so I'll do that a lot. I will, um, I will go and watch the the live feed of a of a um, the keynote presentation at Amazon or at Microsoft or at Oracle, whatever it is. Um, and the beauty of that, of course, is one you don't have to travel, but two, you can get halfway through and go, oh, "This is not really that interesting to me," and click off, or you can. Watch it later because sometimes they're three o'clock in the morning here because it's mm. US time, lunchtime or something, and so it doesn't work timing wise. But I do, I do spend a fair bit of time um, looking at those, watching those. Um, I find those webinars really useful, rather than more so than just reading. So you know, listening is I find much easier um, because I can be while they're talking, I can be doodling and thinking and scribbling and whatever. Whereas if you're reading, you're sort of mm. you're stuck doing that. So, but of course, I do still do read. I do read papers. There's some um, you know, material that comes out, and so I do spend a fair bit of my time now, actually, just um, trying to absorb what's coming. Okay. So, to, I guess to continue on your story, perhaps following uh, uni, did you join an IT company? What What were you thinking at that point in time? You've, I guess, completed one part of this kind of yep. education. So I completed my. Engineering degree, so four years after school, I'd finished my degree, uh, and I'd been and started doing the IT stuff. But because of um, 
you know, because of my scholarship to the military academy, I owed them five years return of service. So I had no choice. I was going to... I was joining the Air Force. That's what I'd joined. So I had to take a, a role in the Air Force somewhere. And we were ranked from, you know, who came first to who came last. And they started to go at the top and said, where do you want to go? And as usual, the top guy usually says, I want to go and work on the F-18s. So he went off to Newcastle. I just said, oh, look, I want to go back to Adelaide. What's in Adelaide? Oh, the Orions are out at Edinburgh. So I'll go to Edinburgh. And they went, oh, yeah, no worries. Because that's usually a number a bit further down the list. Usually mm. wants that. So I went, to, I went to Edinburgh and it was a fantastic experience. And, and by the way, the, the, the interesting point at that time, that was a bit frustrating to me because you know, mm. at that point I was thinking, all right, now I want to get it, I want to go and do stuff, you know. Oh, God. But you had this it. obligation. I've got this obligation. Yeah. yeah, return of service obligation, it's called, Rosso. And I thought, oh, what a pain in the butt. Um, but in, in hindsight, it was a very good thing. So I went off to Edinburgh and I, my first job was out on the flight line so there's 20 aeroplanes there flying 24-7 around looking for submarines and, you know, and now looking for, you know, boat people. Um, and so there's three shifts, 24-7, three shifts of, uh, of technicians who support those aeroplanes. So they're electricians, they're engine fitters, they're airframe fitters, they're radar experts, all those. And there's an engineer that is responsible for them who was 20 years my senior, but I was, give, I was put in as his 2IC because that was the learning. They're very good at the mm. learning concept in the military. So I was his 2IC for a year, and so I basically followed him around, and then I would do shifts that he didn't want to do, and you know, there would be a, an, an aeroplane would break down in, you know, in Guam, and he was the father of kids, and he didn't want to go to that. So he'd say, Jeff, do you want to go and do that? I said, of course I do. So Hercules would come in and pick up me and 20 guys, and we'd throw a spare engine or whatever it was in the back of the Herc and fly off to Guam and fix this aeroplane and come back. Standard day at the office? Yeah. You know. <laughs> Chuck an engine. Well, yeah. <laughs> in the back of the Herc and, and head off. And I had a government credit card, the Green Australia credit card, and would have to put everyone in hotels and feed them and make sure everything was all organised. The whole thing was my thing to organise. So I was really good at age 21 to be doing that with, um, with some of those staff working for me would have been 40, 50 years old. So it was really... It was an amazing introduction to staff management and logistics and organisation, and mm. but basically management. Mm. It really was. So unwittingly, you probably all these ingredients are now, you know, starting to ripen for yeah. you to jump in and, and and start your own business. Yeah, I'm still, and, I'm, and of course at that point I'm going. I want to go. I want to go to the car. It's good another four years to go. So year two, they, and a bit of luck because I'd done my computer science course. There's a job on the base that one of the someone has to run, which is the IT. You know, there's quite a bit of IT in a base that size. Um, and so that position came up, and they said, "Oh, Jeff's just finished his course, and he might as well do that." So I, I got put into that role, which meant I had to do a little bit more training. They sent me off on some on some specific training, um, which got me more interested in the whole IT thing. Good for the CV, of course, mm-hmm. adding that in there. Um, I did that for a year, and then. Um, and then, it, luck again, a bit of luck. I guess you make some luck. But the uh, we bought the F-18s just a few years before that. They were the first fly-by-wire aeroplane that we'd ever had, so completely computer-controlled. And they wanted to do some some adjustments to that, um, which is done out at the DSTO, which is right next door to Edinburgh. So it's handy. So they put, pushed me over there to work with them on that. So I was writing programs with, um, with them on that, with the F-18, which is fascinating stuff. Uh, did that for a year, 
and then I went and did my masters. So you know, I was getting closer, <laughs> and then you know, my rosé was up a few years later after I'd done my masters and a few other things, um, and yeah, I was ready to go. So at that stage, I was about 26, I think. So nine years from 17, yeah, 26 and a half, maybe. Um, and by then, I had so I had my couple of degrees and my masters. I'd had you know, management experience. I'd had mm. you know run the computers on the base. I'd you know been involved in some research and development. I was in much better place to be thinking about my next steps rather than where I wanted to be at 21, thinking I could you know, take on the world and do something. It was much better to have had that experience. Much, much better. Mm. So, which was forced on me, forced in a vertical. Yeah. yeah. So then, how did you make the jump? Um, so that so literally when I was able to, so my my Rosso was up. I started looking the paper. We're living we're in Melbourne. I'd been posted to the uh, the headquarters in in Melbourne, and uh, just started looking the paper for ads and thinking, I wonder if I could get that. And I wonder if they'd, you know, because you feel a little bit, you're not sure. You know, and I'm, I've been in the military for nine years. I've never worked in in uh, in private enterprise. I'm not sure whether they'll whether I'll get the job or not. And now, knowing now, when I'm as an employer now, imagine looking at my CV in in 1995 with all of that technical qualifications and experience. Of course, I got a job straight away with a, a um, IT consulting firm called SMS um, in Melbourne, who were looking for people who actually knew something about technology at that point because no one was really studying it no one it wasn't mm. it wasn't it wasn't mainstream in 95 so um yeah they yeah they just grabbed me straight away it was the first interview I did first job interview I went for I got and and so how long were you there before you then sort of jumped into forming my own yeah yeah so that was um that was really that's where I had my wife to sort of thank for that um, so Tom, eldest, was born 20 years ago, uh, which was when we were in Melbourne. So a year into that job, after I'd left the Air Force. And uh, Sarah's an Adelaide girl, and both of our parents live in Adelaide. And so with a brand new baby, we went from double income, no kids, having fun, living a life, living the dream in Melbourne, having fun, to uh, Sarah's at home with a child, on her own, this is boring for her, um, you know, it would be nice if we could come back to Adelaide where she's got her friends, her sister, her, her mum, my mum, you know, all the rest, all that support network. Um, so she said, look, you know, I wouldn't mind moving back to Adelaide. And I said, well, you know, I love Adelaide too, but the job I was doing was great. You know, Melbourne's really the IT centre of Australia because of Telstra. There's a real network of um, IT around that was created around Telstra. Mm. It still is. Um, so it was like, well, what do I... Um, what do I do back in Adelaide? There's nothing really there that I want to do. Um, and Sarah said, well, you know, what's the options? And I said, well, I could start my own, which I'd love to do. She said, well, why don't you do that? I said, because that's crazy, because um, <laughs> they never work. You know, the, the statistics show that you know, it, it'll, it'll fail. You know, there's such a small percentage of these things actually survive and work. She said, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? I said, well, we'll, you know, we'll do the blow the little money we have on our um, equity we have in our house because we'd bought a house by then and had a small amount of equity, $40,000 we had, which is what we used to start the business. I said, when that, when that runs out, the bank will want the house back and we'll have to move back to Melbourne and I'll get a job. I said, well, okay. If that's the worst thing that'll happen, why not? Because we were still young and 
So good on her, she said, you know, give it a crack. So fortunately, in the story, that first business, strategic data management, worked. You know, because not all of them work, as we said, and some of mine haven't worked since, but fortunately the first one did. Because if the first one doesn't work, I reckon it's hard. Yeah. And, and it might have put you off. Definitely put, would put you off. Um, in this country, it puts other people off mm. too. You know, for failure is bad. Whereas, you know, they famously talk about in the US, you know, until you've failed three times, they're not interested mm. in you. Is that real? I don't know. I don't know. I've never worked in the Valley, but... Um, my brother has, and he, he said there is an element to that, that um, they obviously look at what, what did you failed and how did it go and what were you doing, and because you know, there's a lot of those startups that, there are a lot of those startups in, in, in the valley that, that in our terms do pretty well, but then fail, mm. you know, as in, because unless you get massive numbers in the US, they're not interested. So um, failure is, this, you know, this, this failure and failure. Um, but for us in Australia, if you failed once, I reckon no one, again, the, the, I don't think anyone in any institution would lend you money after that, I don't think. Um, you might get some friends and family, that, but even them, they'd be thinking, oh, the first one didn't work, why is this one going to work? Mm. And, you know, it's just really bad. So the, the core um, sort of focus of the business... The first one? Yeah. ..was about, um, I could just see that there's so much was being digitised and so much was becoming data, whereas before it was all paper and when I grew up... Um, there was so much being put in electronic format, but very little of it was actually being consumed. You know, people, again, because they, again, I guess because we didn't grow up with it, didn't really know how to pull this data together and make sense of it. So, and that was what a lot of what I was doing for the, in, the, in that research at, uh, with the F-18 was about, we were collecting gazillions of data, like big, big data in today's terms, even back then on very small computers, so we had to be clever how we crunched that data and actually could make sense of it. So I said, but in getting out into the corporate world, realised they had heaps of data that they weren't crunching and making sense mm. of. You know, they were not using their sales, the sales data that they had on customers and products and which ones were selling, which ones were profitable, which ones weren't. They really, a lot of it was based on gut feel of the, the guys that have been around a long time saying, no, this product sells better than that one. You know? mm. Well, does it actually? <laughs> Have you looked at it? And if you'd done the statistics to show that it might sell better in Sydney, but have you seen how well these other ones sell, you know, in regional areas or whatever it is? So that was the focus of uh, strategic data management, so strategically managing your data. Strategic data management, which was called SDM in the end, um, was all about that, grabbing data and making it What accessible. was the life cycle of business and what did it mean personally to you when, when, you, when that got acquired? Yeah so, that, so yeah, so that we started that in '99, uh, Feb '99, and sold it in um, 2007, so eight years later. Um, you know, for nearly 10 million. So that was a good, you know, good, good exit. You know, fantastic, changed my life, of course. But along the way, of course, to, to get to that valuation, it was making me good money. You know, so mm. we all of a sudden went from that 40,000 equity in a little house to be able to buy a big house and you know, do go and overseas travel and, and live a good life. We started to live quite, quite a nice life. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, the exit was just the cream on the, on the cake to be able to, at then nearly age 40, basically retire, yeah, mm. to live the dream, retire at 40. And this wasn't as, you know, like the, the aspiration now is that that happens. You know, it's kind of a bit of a scene. You, you start a business and sell. Um, but that probably wasn't as dominant quite back then, like, amongst, I get your peers? No, and, uh, no, no, no. It was all about going to work for a big, the biggest firm you possibly yeah. could mm. and, you know, being a really big, safe, 
business and and uh, and work your way up the ladder. That was the, that's what we all were supposed to do. And of and course, I think that's what my father wanted me to do too. By the way, I don't think he really it, wanted me doing <laughs> starting businesses. Yeah, and at the time, I mean, the, the whole purpose of you creating this business was just to get back to Adelaide and give me something some, something to do. Again, about that, that, there was a need there, and I solved it. And in the same way that I needed to get that assignment done, so I solved it back in the. You know. Were you tempted to pack up shop then and go right? I've I've made my lot, and I'm not going to take more risks. Yes. Yes, absolutely. That was that was a phase I went through of going. Well, I don't want to give it away, mm-hmm. having having finally made it, and that was a hard journey. You know, we, we flicked over it quickly, but that was pretty hard, full on starting. How long? Business. How long was that little your little sweet spot of being retired? Well, I had so part of the the ex the sale the share sale agreement to the public company that bought us DWS um, was that. Uh, I had a non-compete period for two years. And I remember at the time saying, I think, you beauty, you know, like, I don't want to work for the rest of my life. I don't care if I can't do it for two years. I'm not going to work the rest of my life in this game in IT. I'm over it. <laughs> um, so I happily signed that. Um, but part of it was that um, it was two years or a year after I left that business. Mm-hmm. And so I stayed on. I'm glad I did um, for a year because I did the maths and said, right, if I stay for a year, I leave. And a year later, the two years is up and I can... I'm then at least free to do whatever I want, um, if I want to. But I had no intention to. Um, but in that year, I actually learnt quite a bit from uh, from that organisation. And I've and I've said this before. And I don't think they learned a lot from me, which was <laughs> even better. <laughs> um, so yeah, I learned a lot from them on how to run a bigger business because they're a much bigger business than us. We were, and we sold that business. SDM was 100 staff. They were 500 staff. So. It was a much they, they they had some good systems, good processes, good way of doing things that um uh, and they're still around. They're still they're still there. So they jump between 100 and 500 people. Yeah, and you a see lot. a lot of mm. businesses now trying to consult into that space. It 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 is really taking on. We can kind of keep this as you know a very large family mm. to we yeah, need no. systems about recruiting oh, yeah. and people and pathways and succession yeah, no, planning and a hundred staff you know i would go because we had them spread across adelaide melbourne sydney and we had a salesperson in canberra but i would every month i would go to each office and i'd do the monthly presentation about how we'd gone and the numbers and you know i talk about we had a slide on ins and outs you know who'd, who'd joined and who'd left and i knew those people i knew all the hundred because i'd met them all mm. whereas at 500 there's no way you can know everyone and you know, you know, I was involved in recruiting of most of them. At um, I think I probably interviewed at just about everyone at the at the in the in the STM business. But in the 500 person business, there was recruiters doing that, and you might see the senior ones. Yeah, you, know, you might interview the senior people. You wouldn't see like the juniors. So yeah, very different business. So but, re- but it was useful for later on when we started growing bigger businesses. So on that retirement never eventuated. You no. So uh, I um I uh, so I did my year left. And uh, I, I started my retirement, and I reckon I was three months into it, and I was seriously bored. Um, you know, you, your friends are all working, so they can't play with mm. you. I don't play golf, and that's a, it seems to be what retired people you used to a, fill in time. Do you ride a bike? <laughs> no, don't ride a bike. I sail. I like sailing. I like water skiing. I'm, I'm a real boat person. I like boats. Um, but you know, there's no, no one to play with, and including my wife. She was busy. She had things to do, and. And my kids were at school, and I was like, oh, this is pretty boring. So anyway, I was at the gym, sadly, at about 10 o'clock in the morning, and um, I was on the treadmill and with all the, you know, a lot of mums that had dropped the kids at school. It seems to be the after-school shift. 
And uh, and next to me was an old customer that I that I'd, um, used to work for many years ago. And he said to me, "What are you up to?" And I said, "Oh, not a lot." And he goes, "Oh, come and come and give me a hand." And it was it was in health. Uh, and uh, anyway, we talked about talked. I talked to him later about it, and uh, and it was clear that the health industry and you look the further you look into it is so far behind in the mm. use of IT. I thought, well, this is quite challenging. I thought, this is something I could do that'll. I don't need to do it for the money, but I'll do it because it's interesting and I think it needs fixing. You know, me as a father, it annoys me that I get a, a letter from the school and the, one of the boys is going on a, a school trip and they'll say, when was Tom last vaccinated for whatever? And I go, oh, I don't know. Mm. I, I wish I could just look at my phone and tell you that because I should be able to. It's very frustrating to can't. So that started a whole journey on e-health and electronic health records and... Uh, and then, you know, one thing led to another and I thought, now we've got to do this properly. So I've started a business to, to get into that. And so that's a lot of what I'm doing now is around e-health and m-health, mobile health. And what, what was this business that, um, that I guess came out of this foray and discovery of these health-related complexities? Sharman E was the, the name of that business. And the, the, na- the reason that's that name um, is I didn't want it to be yet another three-letter acronym, which I didn't come myself with SDM. You know, I started as a strategic data management, but it was SDM to everyone except me. I kept calling it strategic data management, but everyone else called it SDM. And, you know, there's IBM, there's SDM, there's DWS, there's EDS, there's everything's three-letter acronym. So my business partner and I at that point, Jamie Potter, who I went to school with, that's another part of the journey, the story, but he and I were in, literally in a car driving to Perth, he was driving across to Perth to take his kids on because he'd retired with me. Uh, he was going to take his kids on a, an odyssey through WA and the Kimberleys and everywhere. Um, but he needed to get the, the four-wheel drive to Perth first and the kids were all going to... Well, the kids were going to fly there and then they were going to travel. And I said, oh, I'll come with you. I've never been across the, across the you know, Great Australian Bite there and I've got nothing else to do because it's going to be a five-day trip. I'll come with you. So on the way across, we talked about this and I told him about the whole health thing and, and cloud and other things and... And he said, yeah, well, we should do it. And uh, I said, well, we need a name for it. And we literally, at one of the campsites, said, well, what are we going to do with that name? Didn't want the three-letter acronym. Well, you know, a lot of people just use a, use a name of a city or a town or something or other as the name of their business because it doesn't, need, doesn't mean, need to mean anything. So we literally were going, putting the finger on the map, and we'd come up with things like, nah, no, that wouldn't work, no, that wouldn't work, that wouldn't work. Chamonix, oh, yeah, I skied there. I remember going skiing there when I was... a 19-year-old and went backpacking around Europe. We skied at Chamonix. It was a beautiful place, right up in the hills, in the clouds. It's even in the clouds, I said. That'll do, Chamonix. That's the business. That's the business name. Right, next. You know, what's the business plan? And, and uh, yeah, that was, that was where that came from. Right. Just on those uh, periods of, um, you know, uh, non-work, there seems to be about a pattern with very, very successful people. And I was reading Kerry Stokes's book and a lot of, a lot of business, a lot of great ideas, a lot of work and decisions were made, you know, on boats. Yeah. You know, two weeks out of the Abrolhos Islands, diving and... Correct. Um, do you think that that pattern of, you know, intense work and then periods of rest really foster the next thing and yep. allow you... It's kind of the luxury that, that people on the... in the Treadmill. On the treadmill, they, they just never get that and so they don't break that cycle. Totally. Is that a fair... No, it's totally fair. It's absolutely correct and... You know, that's where the, um, um, and it's happened for us. You know, when we're at SDM, growing that business, you know, you just flat out 
running that business and growing that business and worrying about that business. And while you'll see a little gem, you'll see something, you might watch something on a webinar and you think, oh, there's something in that. But it just sits on a to-do list and goes nowhere. Whereas when you've got some time, you can, while you're walking the dog, you're thinking about it. You know, while you're driving up to the river shack, you're thinking about it that new idea and you're scribbling down and you're thinking, well, how would this work and how could I make that work? And Because you've got time, which is such a luxury these days. I mean, we all, we're all time poor. Worse than ever, I think now, time poor. Um, so, yeah, I think it's been... It is absolutely essential. And so... And now, it's in the way I've set up the businesses, Jamie and I have set up the businesses now, that yeah, we're not really that executive in any of them so that we do have more time to keep an eye on things that are... You know that classic on the business, not in the business. It is actually true. Um, so we do spend a lot of time thinking about not only those businesses, but what's next. The, and I'm keen to touch on cloud mm. in a second, but mm. it seems to me that as your pattern is very much about identifying the next thing, Wave. yeah, and then how do you practically Apply. implement that? It's exactly that. What um, we do. So how did then clouds? Come yeah. about, and what was the evolution life cycle of cloud? Yeah, so the, um, as part of that, um, in that time off, uh, so in the three months we retired and watching webinars, I could see that this cloud with the C, the cloud um, technologies, just made sense. You know, you could see that right. Yeah, okay, that if we look at the frustrations that we'd had with our customers internally, um, so an executive or a business person in the in an organisation would come to us and say, look, we'd really love to do this sort of project, technical project. And we'd say, yeah, yeah we can do this. this. We, we, we could do, build that for you in, you know, say two months. And then they, it'd take them three months to get, for their IT department to get the servers provisioned so that we could start. So for me, it was always the annoying um, piece that got in the way of us being able to deliver was this god-awful process of provisioning the systems we needed to do our job and it's even worse in a government department where it's all outsourced and there's a process and it's just horrendous right the cloud of course as you would well and truly know and we all know now um you know we could be rough and running in minutes so i could say to my customer i could build that thing for you and i'll be able to show it to you in weeks running and you will be able to use it and play with it and get your staff to try it and if you don't like it you can just turn it off and you will have spent tens of thousands rather than hundreds of thousands and you'll have spent weeks rather than months if not years and you know I could just see that that was just that was obviously going to appeal to all of my customers so we said we've got to we've got to get onto this so we said again looking for a name what are we going to do with this one (laughs) uh looked at so I went back to my aviation background my air force background and said well there's there's names of clouds there's stratus there's nimbus there's nimbus you know there's, there's a whole lot of latin names for the clouds and let's just get one of those. Oh, shit, they're all taken. Every single one of those, .com and .net, everything, all taken. Yeah, right. Other people are on this as well. We're not the only ones thinking like this. I think we're onto something here. Um, German background, cloud with a K, let's do that. Oh, that's available. Good. <laughs> Grab that. And what year was this? That was 2008. We registered cloud.com.au. And a... Sorry. And how did the... So it's nearly 10 years ago. Yeah, and even now people struggle to yeah. describe the cloud. Yeah. So how did you go about selling it and triggering that growth? So we started, the important point is we started Shamini and cloud at basically the same time. And we knew, to Jamie and I's view was cloud was 
was going to be big, but we didn't know how mm. long it would take to do exactly what you just asked. How long is it going to take for people to get this stuff mm. and then buy it? So we were, we knew we'd have to nurture that one. And again, because we, because of the success we'd had, we knew we could fund that for a while if we needed to. The other, the Chamonix business, we knew would be, we could get that one ticking and making money pretty quickly. So it was sort of ended up funding the start of Cloud. Um, and so the, the early days was all about dealing with the naysayers, dealing with internal IT, saying, oh, that's a lot of rubbish and we'd never do that. And, and security they're so is, protective of their servers mm. and, like, security. I mean, everything was stacked against and, it initially. And their it way of totally. doing things in yeah. general. And they're usually quite mm. rigid people. Mm. Like, you know. and, and it's their job. Yeah. Ultimately, they were thinking, if you do that, they don't well, need me. Right? That was ultimately, if you boil it down to, tin huggers, as we call them. You know, they want to <laughs> hold on to those servers because that's their, that's their thing. That's their livelihood. So, understandably, they were... They were very, very anti and would just... We, I would run workshops, so CIOs would get me in and to run a workshop with their, with their IT management team to try and... Because the CIOs would get it. They would understand that the senior, the leaders would get mm. it. And it was just a matter of how do we get this staff on board. And so we'd go through a, a classic session of... The first session was what were the pros of cloud, right? And they'd be... You'd, for, you'd you know, force them to bring a couple out under the whiteboard and yeah because you do it with sticky notes and whatever and uh, and then we said right now we'll move on to the cons and they go oh yeah here we go this is going to be great <laughs> this session we're going to love this session security yeah security 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 yeah, security security security, security. <laughs> yeah, and just just you know whiteboards covered in these uh, sticky notes of why you wouldn't want to do cloud then we spend the next couple of sessions um, explaining to them how you deal with all of that um, and Usually, by the end of it, they were, you know, they were like, right, yeah, we need, we need to get on this. And in fact, we need to lead this. And in fact, they should be the pioneers of it, so that they can, they will have a job for a long time because this is the new wave. You know, so you had to get them to that point. So that, so that took sometimes months, sometimes years in in some cases. I mean, everyone faces the problem of dealing with naysayers. I mean, mm. the way you've described it, did you basically just go through and deal with every mm. negative post-it note one by one? We group them because, you know, security would be 50. <laughs> and we'd group them into the the, the key, you know, complaints uh, or, you know, showstoppers or issues or whatever they like to call them. And then, yeah, just deal with them. And you were running these or helping to run these workshops? Yeah, I would, I would be the person running the workshop and I'd have a technical person there to deal with the really... Because there'd always be some technical... I'd really want to go and, you know, hassle you about some low-level technical thing, which I'm not. I'm not that technical anymore, so... I'd have a technical person in the room with me. And was there ever a moment where you just thought, why am I running these workshops and arguing with people yeah. about what it looks like? Oh. I don't need to do this. Oh, I would, my, I'd have to... My wife would put up with that. She would have to counsel me that on most mornings before those sessions. I'd be saying, I'm off to talk to these people who just don't get it. I'm going to have to... They're going to tell me why it doesn't work, the same, you know, and I'm going to have to tell them why it does... And some of them will still not believe it, and some of them still don't believe it. Mm. And some of them still don't want to don't want to believe it. You you would come across them, I'm sure. This. I, I just remember the uproar at the Fremantle Football Club when um, it was all Blackberries, you know, because yeah. of, because of yeah, security. security. And, and then then I think there was one or two people brought their iPhones in, and it was like the whole <laughs> castle was going to fall down <laughs> because you know, like this can't work, no. you know? Like, this will never be the case. iPhones will never sort of prevail in this war. Yeah. Mm. 
and sure enough. Sure enough. So it was very frustrating having to, every new client we went to, it was like, here we go again. So, so, uh, what, so you hit a, I'd imagine, you know, you're absolutely grinding here. You're going to each organisation, fighting them, winning them over, moving on to the next one. Mm. You may not have seen the end in sight, but was there like a bit of a tipping point where you kind of almost got over the hill and you realised, oh, actually, things are starting to kick off yeah, a little I, bit? Yeah, look, certainly, you know, I'm, some of those sessions could take, it was usually four sessions. I'd have quite, you know, four specific sessions to get, uh, to go through these um, uh, cloud strategy sessions, as we used to call them. Um, and look, those, those, so those, some of those would be run over a couple of weeks. So it wasn't. Sometimes they they'd be so onto it. These would by 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 session three, you could see the people, their arms were unfolding and the, and they, they were leaning forward at the, at the sessions and they were contributing and you know and they were coming up with what they could do with the cloud, which was session four. It was so. What would you do? What would this sort of organisation do on the cloud? Where would you start? And so then what you were doing was basically outlining a roadmap of work for you to do for the next X years. Oh. So it was. Quite and what beneficial. scale of businesses were you talking to and what were the size of the contracts that you were yeah. kind of presenting? I mean, it must have been worth it for you. Yeah, so we, we actually thought, Jamie and I thought when we were doing the business plan that the, the organisations that would get it would be the more of the sort of smaller to medium-sized businesses who didn't have the IT department, so didn't have that, the naysayers. You know, they just had people running a business who wanted to get on and do things quickly and didn't have to go to some IT guy and ask for a server. Um, they would be the ones who would embrace it quickly, whereas the, we thought the big big end of town because they've got a massive whole organisation bigger than any business I've ever run, just running their IT, um, would never be customers. But it was ended up being the reverse. So you know we had customers like um, Coles was one of our first customers. You know. Qantas ended up being probably our most flagship customer. You know, fantastic AGL. Santos. You know, how, like how, do you win a, how do you win a big name like that? Yeah, who do you call? Yeah. <laughs> well, fortunately... Joycey. Yeah. Joycey. Steph here, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Fancy four sessions for a strategic cloud <laughs> plan. Yeah. Well, a bit of that. Did you? Because yeah. it's, it's, it, when you say it's just as quick as that and that's not expensive for them, you know, if you say four sessions, it's, you know, I won't tell you the number, but it's not. It was less than $10,000 for them to go, well, why is that, how's that going to hurt me? Mm-hmm. Can't hurt. Might as well listen to this stuff. Um, so you might sit sit next to someone in, in, in the, on a plane. Always try and sit up the front because you'll always be sitting next to an executive from some some organisation. Andrew mm-hmm. and myself with Pickstar um, often talk about you know the advantages of sitting up the front mm-hmm. and who you meet. Totally. Yep. And you should always try and talk to that person yeah. next to you and find out why they're flying to or from Adelaide. Yeah. You know that's why I always yeah, okay. want to find out. Are you? got a big business here or are you coming over to do business here or and then see where that leads um but no what where we actually got the uh, early early entree and early wins was from the vendors themselves so you know the amazons and the microsofts who were the cloud providers they wanted their customers to embrace the cloud and so and they knew what we're up to they'd seen it we told them about what we're doing and so they would ask us to come in as sort of like that independent sort of Advisor, validation, yeah, saying, look, it's not us. We push, of course, we're going to push our product down your throat. You know, we want you to buy our cloud. Listen to these guys; they'll tell you why you should be doing it and why other people are using it and doing it and the advantages of it. And if you still want it, come and talk to us. So that they gave us some really good intros. 
What were the scale of contracts? Again, um, you know, you don't have to give us number, like you know, customers and, and how much they were paying. But like, what are we talking here? What what gamut? Um, you know, anywhere from a hundred thousand to over a million. Wow. In, in 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 project size, yeah, yep, yeah. And so when we sold cloud, it was turning over. So we started in two thousand and eight, October two thousand and eight, uh, and we sold it to. We basically agreed with Telstra to sell it to them in uh, 2015, sort of end of 15. So, um, and it's right? on record as 2010. Sorry, we started 2010. I was talking about October 2010. Sold it five years later, basically. And I've seen some headlines that you know the, the number quoted is 40 million. Yeah, somewhere between. So Adelaide, the advertiser reported is 40 million. The Age reported is 50 million. Somewhere in the middle, somewhere in between, so I say, is, okay. is right. And structurally, it was yourself, your business partner. Yeah, and some two ex Microsoft executives that we pulled in to basically run that for us. Yep. They, they, were the, they were the drivers of that business. That's our model now. Jamie and I are sort of, as I said, more non-executive, more on the strategy, more on the on the um, you know, where it's going. But these having other people doing the day to day. Some younger, you know, hungrier. Smarter, willing to run the workshops. <laughs> you know, smarter execs. Uh, can you that. can you tell us how the how the deal came up with Telstra? Were, was it you guys seeking out um, a, a partner, or was it them knocking on the door? Them knocking. Um, but we we've uh, since that first sale, we've learnt that um, you know you should always have your business ready for sale. And, uh, and what you, does that mean? It means having it in a um, you know don't have it in a structure and a you know, having your P&L on your balance sheet and everything clean and and sensible and not filled with, you know, your personal jet skis and all this other rubbish that sometimes you see when you're looking at businesses. It's very, it's very clean and, and you've got a, a documented um, business strategy, I guess. We show. So you're basically giving, we like to say, we, we, we actually make sure any... And we, we, always, we always have a pretty good idea of who our potential acquirers should be right when we start. We think, you know, who would buy this business? Because we, we are in the game of, as you pointed out, seeing the next wave, getting onto that early, grabbing that before others can be bothered or have, have figured it out, growing that to a size where it becomes attractive to a, a public listed company that really can't do startups. They just, they just can't. It's not, they, you know, it's not that they... Not in their DNA. That's right. And it's, it's not that they've, you know, like they're not smart enough or they're not capable enough. It's just... You know, their organisations uh, have to have got shareholders who want to see what profit did you make in the last quarter. Well, you know, startups don't make anything in the mm. first many quarters. You know, so that just doesn't. They just have to shut them off. They can't do those things. Whereas they can quite happily buy something that's already up and running, making money, and expand it. You know, they can take a business that we've created, which is in a couple of cities, and go. Well, we're in every city in Australia and in Asia. Bang. Roll it out, so it makes sense. SDM was how long did you have that for? That was ten, uh, nine, nine years. Uh, cloud uh, was five. five. Like I'm assuming you get getting quite efficient now at this pattern. What do you think an optimal time is? And look, you know, it always changes, but is five, five years, years is a good yeah. a good measure? I think it takes five years to to establish and ex- 
grow it to a, to a size. There's a, there's a limit to how fast you can grow these things. Even Cloud, when it, you know, it was, Cloud was the fastest growing company in Australia, according to BRW, in 2014. So we were growing that faster than anyone else. Um, but we, it could have gone faster, as in the demand was there for it to grow faster. Mm. But we, it's just there's a limit to how many how many people you can good people you can hire and acquire and bring on and train up and and you're always losing people because that just happens. That's life. Um, so you know it's it's really hard to grow infinitely fast. So there is a time. There's a time, and I think five years is is a good time. And what else would you say is I guess part of this recipe for acquisition? You've got always being ready for sale knowing Fun. knowing who the acquirer is knowing who the acquirer is so what would appeal to them and you know does it have to be profitable uh, in my case yes in the cases in always in our cases yes um, I don't think that is always the case by the way um, you know if you've got um, a business that because when you're growing really fast sometimes it's hard to be profitable because you're, you're growing so fast the costs that you're incurring to do that growth but as long as you're in geographies or you're in uh, niches or areas that they're not, then they will pay mm. for that, for that. Uh, not necessarily the profit because they can see that they can make that profitable by cutting out some of your costs, you know, all your back office costs and all those things that typically mergers and acquisitions look at, all those back office things they can cut out. So, you've, you know, data, cloud, you know, they've been huge and they still will be huge parts of, um, you know, the innovative world. Yeah. What is, what are the areas that now you kind of think, ooh, there's something in this? You know, I mean, everyone, the, the headlines are, via, you know, virtual reality, yeah. augmented reality. Um, and and, you know, and clearly there's things that are exciting you because after this acquisition, again, you could have retired and you've decided not to. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. We're going again. Um, on, a few th- on a few fronts. Um, so there's still that data. I mean, expose data we've started, another data business, because that, the whole Internet of Things just means there's going to be even more data. You know, like everything will be giving us data. Before it was just computers in server rooms that were spewing out data, but now it's absolutely everything is giving us data. So the air conditioner will have... Everything. You know, the, your, your, your cattle, your, um, you know, your, just everything that's floating around. That's, uh, you know, your, your, your machines in your factories, your... Everything that's good, that anything that sort of moves really will have be presenting data, and because of because of wireless technology, that's really the where why the Internet of Things is becoming so massive. Is that we've always been collecting data in in, for example, in manufacturing plants through PLCs and whatever, but how do you get that data to the cloud? Right. Well, now it's easy because there's wireless networks everywhere. Or you can put a tiny little SIM in these little machines and pay nothing to get all this data sent to the cloud. So that's what's changed and made that next step of big data and Internet of Things. So we're definitely chasing that one with Expose. Um, the virtual reality and augmented reality, I think that's cool. That is seriously cool. And so we are uh, doing some stuff there. And But that'll take a little while for people to understand. But some some, some early wins in, um, in uh, areas of training of in dangerous environments, for example. So teaching people how to put out a fire, well, we'd rather not actually light the fire why don't we do that in a virtual environment? And, and you know, in mining environments, which are dangerous, and people get, we know, accidents, too many accidents happen there, and they've got a full-on process to take people through before you're allowed on a mining site, which is expensive. Well, with virtual reality, you could be doing that a lot more affordably, 
in an environment here in a city rather than having to do it out in the middle of nowhere. And all that. So there's some, I think there's some great things with virtual reality and then augmented reality on top of that. But back to the data, I think that machine learning and artificial intelligence is the next part of that because we, get, we are producing so much data. And I said way back with SDM, we were, we were producing the sort of output for the user to make sense of, well, there's just too much data for that now. Mm. So that's where the machine learning, where it'll actually start to see patterns that we our brains couldn't possibly absorb. So that we're doing a lot in that because I think that'll be big. So currently I had a bit of a, a squeeze on your LinkedIn just to try and make sense of everything that you've got going on. But you've got five startups that you've co-founded. You, you touched on before how you actually set these companies up to actually be able to manage them because if you're trying to run them all yourself, no. you're going to blow out pretty yeah, quickly. Don't. Yeah. So can you maybe just explain a little bit more about how you set up to, I guess, know enough about how the company's progressing but without actually having to be the guy doing everything? Yeah. So I think part of the, the interesting part of the story is when we were looking at, when Jamie and I were on that trip across the, the Nullarbor, we were thinking, you know, why, why don't people start businesses like we have? You know, like there's a real, we've, had, we've hired some really smart people and they're really capable and, you know, why don't they go and do this? What is stopping them? And, of course, it's, it's, it's that whole risk um, issue of, you know, if you've got a, like I did, when I started STM, I had a wife, Sarah and Tom, and Angus was on the way. Sarah was literally pregnant with Angus when we started that business. So that's nuts, right? And so when you're, when you're in that position, you're more worried about having a very steady job that's going to definitely get paid every month so you can pay the mortgage and, you know, that's where you've got to be at that age. And that's the prime age to be starting your business. So there's, that's why a lot of people don't do it. So we said, well, how do we, what can we do to encourage those people to do that uh, and run businesses for us. So basically what we, what, we've, what we do is we give them, we pick those really good young execs that have either worked for us or we've come across um, and we give them a share. So we gift them that share of the business, of that part of the business maybe, um, to give them an incentive to, grow, to create some wealth, but we, but we are the bankers. You know, we guarantee that this thing will last for two years so, you know, you've got a safe job, you will get paid every month. So we take away the risk but give them the, some of the reward and, but we pay them a little bit less. You know, we say, come on, you've got to... There's got to be some mm. sort of buy-in here. Right. Yeah. And so the ones who are the entrepreneurial types, of course, love that. Mm. They are... It's their opportunity to prove that they are very good but they've never been able... They just can't... They just can't jump and do it themselves and... And nor do most of us, and I was, I was the same, nor do, you know, you might be technically good, but do you know how to run a business? The answer mm. is no. I mean, I had to learn all that very quickly because I had all my studies was technical, as I explained, none of it on business and commerce, so I had to learn that quickly. Um, we can teach them that, we sh and we actually do that for them. We, we, we make a point in the, in the early days of saying, don't you worry about any of that. You worry about that. You worry about getting out there, talking to customers, explaining them what we're doing, and deliver. And, then, and the rest will follow. And we'll worry about payroll and accounting and all that sort of stuff. And eventually we'll introduce you to that because mm. they all are interested in it. We're all interested in that. And we teach them how to run the business so we do less and less and less for them. You get a, a chance then to see some of those humanistic patterns that, that affect just about every startup, you know, like um, sort of doubt, uh, anxiety, um, you know, yeah. overconfidence, fear... You know, you, you guys are in that helicopter. You must see this a little bit. Yes, you do. Definitely. And what stands out? Yeah, they're still, even though you're supporting them, they absolutely start to doubt 
because there's, there's a there is the hockey stick. You know, they they start all so super excited and super keen and super um, ambitious and and confident and get quite press is the wrong word, but you know they get quite annoyed, I guess, that it doesn't actually mm. all happen day one or day two. And we have to coach them through. No, no, this is this is a marathon, not a sprint. This actually takes a little while. You don't make money day one, no matter how good you are, and that's the problem. You actually it, you do go down before you come up, and it's like, is it ever going to turn? That's the question. Is it going to keep going down, or is it going to turn? And you have to coach them through. No, if you do the right things and you do this and you do, that, it will turn. For this to work, you've you've got to pick the right people. Like it's a, you're actually you're doing a lot for these people. You're risk risking a lot, um, not obviously personally because you've, you've you've kind of built up to be able to be in this position. Mm. But what I guess what are you looking for in terms of finding someone to take hold of your idea and and support this business that you're setting up? What what's what I guess the characteristics of the right person? Um, yeah, well, certainly those ones that um I mean they stand out. They're um, they're, they're good at what they do. They're um, they're good. They're not. They're good with. They're good with people. You know, obviously, people are so important. Mm. Um, people being customers and staff. Um, so you need you need people who are, you know, obviously have an understanding of the technology. And I've learned less and less about the actual technology that the the, the, the team are out delivering today. Um, but I understand it mm. at, a, at a, a high enough level. So they need that, but it's more about that whole, how do you run a team of people? How do you motivate and, um, you know, and focus an, or a team of people on a common goal? And that's the important bit is actually people who can do that and that, have, that are prepared to do a bit of extra work. You, you would have seen them. They're, they're the ones who've done a bit of extra. They do a bit of extra. They're not the nine-to-fiver. You can't be a nine-to-fiver mm. and, and run your own business. You guys would know that. Um, you know, so you've got to find those ones that are prepared to... Um, Put in the extra yards, um, and uh, who, and you, some of it's gut feel about whether you think they would mm. actually, and they don't always work. They haven't always worked. I was going to ask, not that we're going to finish on, you know, more negative, <laughs> morbid <laughs> notes, but how, in your journey, the listener will just kind of go, "This has just gone," you know. I call it the Matthew Pavlich graph of of life. <laughs> you get drafted as an eighteen year old. You make the All Australian team by twenty two. You get a wife. You get a dog. Get, you know, become blah, a blah, captain. Blah. Yeah. Become a captain. Then you go into the media. Sorry, yeah. sorry Pav. <laughs> <laughs> but what have been the times where you've questioned, where you've doubted, where it's become really difficult? Well, yeah, right back at the the start, the early one myself, going through that those early days, which I coach my my executives through now, it's, there are days when you think, God, this is, it would be much easier just to be getting a, going back to a job, mm. you know, whereas when I could do a 40-something hour week, uh, whereas now I'm in on Sunday mornings, hungover, doing the invoicing, because there's no one else to do it, so I've got to do that, and, you know, Sarah and kids wondering where the hell I am and, you know, working really long days and, and not actually making much money. Some months not paying yourself anything at all for months on end, not paying yourself and just thinking, oh, God, why, why, did, why did I do this again? <laughs> Remind myself, why did I do this? Um, so, yeah, I've been through that myself in, in my own business, but also we've, um, you know, we've set up businesses that haven't worked or we've opened, an off- opened offices and, and hired an executive that we think and given them shares in, in this business that we think is going to work and it hasn't. And so we've had to shut it. So you know, we, 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 we talk about the hockey stick and we know you're going to go south before it's going to go north. 
and we, Jamie and I, always draw a line at when we will stop that. You know, before you've started before start. or as you... Really? Before we start. So you have that benchmark. Yeah. yeah, before we start, we say we will invest X hundred thousand in this thing and if it goes to that, turn it off. Quite clinical. Very clinical about it. So so therefore, you've someone's been let down, we've been let down. Um, usually the, the person that... You know, well and truly knows because that takes a while so it doesn't happen over a day it happens over months if not maybe every year so they're pretty they're not surprised when it happens but it's um it's it's not fun it's not fun doing that so what's motivating you now then having achieved a heap we've discussed that you don't actually need to um to work this hard and, and keep pushing on what is it that's driving you and and keeping you motivated um, well, the main the main thing that I think about is is our state itself, and you know, having two sons who are growing up in this state, and I want them to be able to do what I've done and create businesses and or, or work for good firms that uh, if they want to do that, and I, I worry that they won't be able to. Um, so, I'm, and that's why I've taken roles like business at the board of business SA to sort of, if I can in some way, because that's a non paid role, just to somehow, if I can help organisations. Mm-hmm in this town be better and smarter that, and can therefore grow and hire more people because I do worry about um, what our kids are going to do and where they're going to where they're all going to have to go into state and there's not, there's not a problem going into state for experience like I got you know I wanted to come back and I was hoping there'd be something back here for me um, so for me it's um, part, part of the reason I keep working is, is that the other part is um, I do get bored easily um, and I, so for me, it's it's a, it's more of a hobby than a than work. And I'm not, you know, I said I'm not executive in mm. any of the jobs. So I'm not on the hook for any activity that has to happen this week. You know, uh, it's more about we have quite clinical sort of meeting timetables with each of the organisations. So um, you know, so and I'll go to Melbourne every couple of weeks and make sure we have meetings, face to face meetings with those guys over there. And um, but most of it, Jamie and I just do on the phone. Or on Skype, and um, and you know it's weekly for certain KPIs. It's monthly for most. It's you know just keeping an eye on things, um, and we've got good measures in place that we can monitor and track. Of course, strategic data management. We can manage our own data <laughs> and and see what's going on. So you know we're not we can see when things are going off the rails pretty quickly. Um, so you know it's I think it's I'm lucky in that I'm I'm still involved in all of those businesses, but I'm not having to be working in them flat out 50 hours a week. Mm. So I think I'm, I'm, it's a great position to be in. My last question before rapid fire, just giving you... Okay, rapid up. fire. No, but this is my last question. Yep. Um, to bring, I guess, the conversation full circle, how do you keep the fire in your children's belly when deep down they know your situation, you know your situation financially and personally, um, and, and you came from you know, more modest mm. beginnings? Absolutely. Are there any things that you've consciously thought about in protecting them from, uh, I guess, the safety net? Or mm, it's uh, it is something I do worry about. I guess is how do how do you get how do they get the fire in the belly that I had to um, to to you know, to get on and do things? And look, it, it must be possible because there are family businesses that achieve it. There's you know the James Packer's made more than his father and his father made more than his father and, you know, so it's it's certainly certainly doable. Um, and so, I, you know, it's something I do... Now that the boys are getting to the age where they are, I do need to think more about. 
Um, I do encourage, I do, whether they believe me or not, I say, look, my, my job is to support myself and Sarah, my wife, your mum, um, for the rest of our lives because we're going to live to we're 100 or more these days. So that's a lot. So I need a lot for that. <laughs> so there might not be much left for you guys. <laughs> Just preparing you. Basically. Yeah. So you might want to think about how you're going to make some money, basically, is, is, is basically my consistent message is, you know, you do not want to rely on what I might or might not have yeah. because we are going to be around for a long time. Yeah. And I'm only, I'm not 50 yet, so I'm not even halfway. So there's a lot, a lot of living to go. Yeah. So before we wind up... Uh, on Rooster Radio, we have a regular section called Rapid Fire, which is poorly organised, poorly executed. Generally, Andrew lets the team down. Generally, it's me. Um, <laughs> but no, not this time. Uh, if you weren't in IT, Jeff, what would you be doing? It's a great question. Um, what would I be doing? Um, I reckon I'd be in... I think if I, you know, if I had my time again, if I could put myself back probably end of school and thinking what would I do I probably would have ended up doing um, more banking and finance sort of that sort of thing you know because I'd later learnt that you know that's a lot of maths and you know that's that would have been really quite appealing data. to me. Yeah lots of data mm. and you know I reckon that would have been really quite interesting. And sorry we should have said that so far you've succeeded. Um, rapid Fire doesn't allow you to sit on the fence with any... Some of our guests always go, oh, you know, yeah. I'm not sure. You've got to sure. make a call. So you have, to, make, you have yep. to have an answer. Banking um, and finance. A South Australian who you most... Who, who you admire the most? Stephen Marshall. Good friend. Um, was in business, has taken the plunge to try and fix this state and good luck to him. Out of ten... How would you, where would you rate South Australia's position from a business and economic perspective? Six. Uh, an album that has been, uh, a musical album that's been formative uh, for you as you grew up? Probably you too. Um, back in the 80s, B.B. King toured with you too. And that was, and yeah, that was all through my degree. I was sort of listening to that. That was that era. U2 was awesome. Your first car? Was a Mini. Mini? A white Mini panel van. It's classic. Classic. Had some funny times in that with my friends. One of the more obscene things that you've purchased that doesn't make financial sense. I once, I bought a Porsche 911 when I sold the first business because I'd always had this dream of... When I was in Melbourne, there was this coffee shop which was a Porsche dealer and we went, I remember we'd go there for coffees and we'd see these beautiful cars and I remember speaking to the sales guy there and he said, and he, and he basically at the time, I couldn't have afforded a tyre on that Porsche 911. I said, one day I'm going to buy one of those. So I bought one and then soon realised it was silly. Did you just walk in and buy it or was it a bit of a process? It was a slight, very short process. It was a little bit too quick. Um, did one drive and it went yeah that's yeah I'll have that I'll have that thanks and then uh, and it was like soon realised that it was wasn't very practical and you know you can only go sixty so I can you can get to sixty faster than most other people but you still can only go sixty so and with two boys teenage boys growing up there yeah it wasn't very practical so yeah got rid of that last one from me business that doesn't make economic sense but you would love to own anyway a business or yeah a business. 
Or a business in an industry. Yeah. I mean, just for me, like mine's a pizza bar. I thought you said it was kind of like... a pizza bar. Oh, uh, pizza bar. See, I, I'd, I'd, take, I'd take an actual nightclub bar. Yeah. So then you could just walk, you know, you're a, you're a VIP and you've got your own little corner. You know, nightmare of a business, but it's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, nightmare but, of a business. Yeah. So that's what, yeah. that's what I'm thinking. Um, oh, okay. Um, it'd have to be something in like um, charter yachts in the Mediterranean. You know, those thumping great super yacht things that, you know, owned by these billionaires that most of the time sit idle and, um, but get leased and rented. And it'd be pretty classic to be sort of involved in that somehow. Have you been on a True out. North or have you been on any of the no, mega yachts? No, I haven't. No, it's, it's something that I definitely aspire to. I'm thinking maybe a 50th or a 60th or something, you know, with friends would be awesome. Um, my last question would be if you were going to play a professional sport, would you pick? Um, Aussie rules, I reckon. I loved, I loved footy. Uh, I played amateur league badly, but um, we were in the one stage. We were in the A1 reserve, so that's sort of quite senior up. And it was, yeah, I really enjoyed my footy. What club? At the uh, Spox, Peter's old collegiate oh, yeah, yeah. I played for. Your, back your in dad, the 90s. Probably, your dad probably umpired a few games. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Hollywood Montessi, you probably would have seen okay. him around back in yeah, the day. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I really enjoyed that. I was, you know, look at. Yeah, I, I, really, I did, and I played for the. We had a defence force team that played against the fire brigade and the police force, and they were always full-on games. And we'd play within the military. We'd play Navy, Army versus Air Force. You know, it was like it was great. I loved it. Really enjoyed it. Never good enough though. Jeff Rorschheim, um I haven't said this before, but it's probably been the most enjoyable rooster radio that I've done, <laughs> and that's a massive call. We've done a massive yeah. call. We've done sixty plus. Jesus. Yeah. Um, and I never thought I'd say it because I, you know, don't want to belittle the others. Yeah. But no, look, I, I think it's almost our longest ever as well. And I'm, That's my I fault. have for me, it um, there hasn't been a wasted minute. So thanks for, um, you know, really peeling back the layers uh, in in your world and giving us an insight from, you know, from your family right through to the success you've had in business. So we really appreciate you coming on board. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed it. Good. Really enjoyed the chat. Thanks for listening to our chat with Jeff Rorsheim. Check out our blog at roosterradio.biz for more info and links to Jeff's companies. We'd love for you to join the Rooster Radio network if you haven't already. Sign up at roosterradio.biz and also join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roosterradiohq. Roosterradio.biz.